Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Hear God's word to us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolat- flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Mike, and I'm on staff here at Christ Community. It's great to see you all out this morning. I said this last service, um, my four-month-old son has decided that sleep is so last week. And so for the last couple days, um, my wife and I have not gotten a lot of sleep. So I come to you this morning full of adrenaline and coffee, and at the very least, whatever I'm about to say should be interesting. Um, We are in the middle of a series called A Beautiful Mess, and that's what we're calling the church. A beautiful mess. It's a mess because it's made up of people like me, and it's beautiful because it's made up of people who have been redeemed by Christ and who are being made new by him. And in this series, we've been walking through a letter written a couple thousand years ago to a church plant in a city called Corinth by its planting pastor, who is Paul. And um, for the last couple weeks, if you've been here, you'll remember we've been, um, except for Easter, kind of hunkering down in this three-chapter section where Paul has been answering a question that he received in a letter from this church. And the question is this. Paul, this meat that they're serving us in the marketplace has been uh, sacrificed to idols, or it came from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol. Can we eat this meat? Can we eat this meat? 
And in his response, Paul observes an interesting distinction in this group of people. On the one side, you've got the, quote, weaker um, in the faith. These are the folks who are not as, as confident in their faith or their ability to engage specifically the freedom that Christ has earned for them. On the other side of the coin, you've got those who are the, quote, stronger in the faith. And these are the people who just run right into these areas of freedom and have no problem when it's gray or, or, uh, or where it's unspecific about what they're supposed to do. And what's interesting is that, and I don't know if this is a cultural thing or what, but at some point I would have expected Paul to address the weaker among them. I mean, to, to, to speak into why they can have confidence in their faith. In fact, as I was reading through this chunk several times and preparing you know, for a couple of passages or a couple of messages here, I, just, I kept expecting to turn the page and read, and now concerning the weak among you, but it just never happened. In fact, Paul spends three very substantial chapters speaking only to the strong in the faith. Why does he do that? Well, I, I think Paul understands something, particularly about freedom. And it is that with great freedom comes great responsibility. Or more specifically, that those who are new to freedom tend to think they are more ready for it than they actually are. It's a lot like the very first time a 16-year-old gets the keys to their parent's car. What does every parent say when they're handing over the keys to their kids for the first time? I mean, out loud. They say a lot of things in their head and to God in that moment, right? But out loud, what they're saying is, be careful. Be careful. Just because you passed your driver's test, just because you got your license and you, you had all those hours of driving with me in the seat next to you pumping the imaginary brake does not mean that you are ready to just drive without any thought or care. Be careful. When, um, this was several years ago, my dad was in this kind of a fender bender and uh, the person who was driving the other car who was at fault was this 16-year-old guy. And uh, my dad gets out of the car, and he kind of surveys the damage. You know how you do, you take pictures and that kind of stuff. And he goes to check on the other driver, and he sees that this guy is just pacing by his car and muttering. And so, curious about this, my dad kind of walks up, and he hears the kid just shaking his head, walking back and forth, saying, my dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me. And so my dad, trying to reassure him again, said, look, hey, kid, it's okay. It's not that big a deal, you know. It's not, your dad's not going to kill you, it's fine. But he just keeps pacing as if he doesn't even hear it. My dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me. So my dad presses in and says, look, nobody was hurt. Your dad is just going to be thankful that you're okay. Cars can be fixed. And when he says this, this kid turns to my dad and says, sir, you don't understand. I am on my way home from the body shop that was fixing my car, my dad's car from the last wreck I was in. And after thinking for a second, my dad said, Kid, your dad's going to kill you. <laughs> you see, with great freedom comes great responsibility and, and a great opportunity to misuse our freedom at cost to others and even to ourselves. And Paul knows this. And for that reason, spends three very robust chapters speaking to the strong who are running into their freedom with reckless abandon because he knows the dangers that wait for them there. And we're going to look today at a passage that's going to sum up for us this three-chapter chunk we've been in for a few weeks now. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bible apps or in your print Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're using one of our community Bibles, you'll find that on page 957. 
And as you're turning there, I just want to remind us where we've been so that we can have a good sense of, of where we're going. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter 8 that Paul is addressing this question, hey, Paul, can we eat this food, if, if this meat, if it came from an animal that was sacrificed to idols? And in his response, he argues that actually your concern shouldn't be about this individual action. Your concern should be about the effect it has on the weaker brother or sister in your midst. So without care, if we're not careful, we could actually, in our freedom, in the legitimate freedom Christ has earned for us, be destroying our brother or sister in Christ. Then in chapter 9, he tells a story from his own life to illustrate this principle. Paul, um, while he was in Corinth, while he was planting this church and preaching the gospel, he argues that he had not the freedom but the right to be compensated for his work as an apostle, to receive a paycheck. And yet, because of the culture, because of uh, the kind of the group of itinerant speakers that would be all over the place demanding money, Paul decides that he's not going to take a paycheck so that he doesn't hinder the advancement of the gospel that he preaches. So here we see that if we're not careful, that engaging the legitimate freedoms and rights God has given to us could actually put a hindrance in front of the gospel. And today, in the passage we're going to look at, Paul offers the third and perhaps most dangerous uh, danger that we could offer that could become a part of our lives if we carelessly engage our freedom. So, and to do that, he's going to tell us a story from history that will get us thinking about this topic. So that's where we begin in verse 1. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this story that Paul is referring to, this historical event, is one that a lot of us are familiar with, but just so that we're on the same page, let me recap it real quick. Thousands of years before this letter is written, the nation of Israel finds themselves in slavery in Egypt. And for generations, they are calling out to God to rescue them. And finally, God raises up the man Moses to, to lead them out of their slavery and into the land God has promised to them. And so several miracles take place to secure their release, and several miracles take place to help them continue as they travel. And here's how Paul sums it up. God comes in his presence in a pillar of cloud into their slavery and ushers them out and leads them out. And when their backs are up against a great sea and the greatest army known to, to the world at that time was descending upon them, God parts the sea and allows them to walk through the water on dry land to safety. And in the wilderness, when they're hungry and thirsty, God brings water out of a rock and causes bread to fall from heaven every single day for their sustenance. And if we, if we look carefully at this, we're going to see that there's actually a commonality between the story of Israel and that of the Corinthian church and ours as well, which is this. God's presence has come to rescue us from our slavery. We too, those of us here who are Christians who have been baptized, we've been baptized into Christ, not into Moses, but we have been baptized. And every week here at, at our downtown campus, we gather at the table to celebrate and partake in a spiritual meal that nourishes our faith. You see the commonalities here? They're, they're very similar stories. And the reason Paul wants these stories to be similar is because of the bomb he's about to drop in verse 5. When he says, Nevertheless, 
Even though all of them experienced God save them miraculously from Egypt through the water, even though all of them experienced God nourishing them in a supernatural way, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What? How is that possible? After all God did to bring them out of their slavery, to sustain them in their journey, how could he not be pleased with them? I mean... After all of that, well, the problem was for the Israelites, for the Corinthian church, they believed one very simple but one very powerful lie that just because they experienced God's favor in saving them from their slavery and bringing them out safely from that land, they thought they were immune from temptation. They thought they were safe, they thought they were strong enough. And if that describes you this morning, if you have experienced, you know, God has saved you and you have been baptized and you partake in communion and gather in the, in the corporate gathering of believers to worship God, please hear what the text is saying to you this morning, what God is saying through Paul. You are not immune from temptation. We are not as strong as we think. And Paul tells this story, this specific story, because it is an example for us He says that twice in this passage. In verse 6, he said, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. And again in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. So what's the example? What exactly did Israel do to bring God's displeasure on themselves? Well, Paul kind of summarizes it and tells us in this passage that there were four main sins that the Israelites were guilty of committing once they were rescued out of their slavery. We're just going to walk through those real quick. Uh, Verse 7, Paul says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Some of your Bibles will have a footnote here that will tell you Paul is quoting Exodus 32, verse 6. And just as a side note, anytime you see that, it's just in your personal reading of the Bible. Chase down those, those references because it'll really help us understand the text. So for instance, Exodus 32 is a story of Israel at the foot of a mountain waiting for Moses to receive these Ten Commandments from God. And it's taking forever. It's like, how long does it take for Ten Commandments, right? And in this time, and in their impatience, they decide that what they need to do I don't know how they got there, but decide what they need to do is they need to fashion a golden calf and worship it while they're waiting on God to give them his covenant stipulations. So, strike one. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. This is a reference to a story while, again, while they're traveling through the wilderness, that the men of Israel begin to pursue the women of this other people group called the Moabites. And they begin hooking up with them. And while they're doing this, their hearts, the hearts of the Israelite men, are turned to worship the God of the Moabites. Isn't it interesting how often those two things go hand in hand? Talk more about that in a second. Then in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents constantly throughout their journey. They, the Israelites get fed up. That wasn't on purpose. They get fed up with the food 
that is provided for them. And the fact that there's no variety, it's just, it's just manna, it's just this bread over and over and over again. And so they begin to cry out to God and complain about the thing he graciously provides to them for their sustenance. And then in verse 10, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a specific example again. When they get close to the land that they're meant to conquer and inhabit, they send it, the Israelites send in 12 spies to just check out the situation. And when they come back to the people, 10 of them say, there's no way. We, are, we, we cannot possibly conquer these people. They're like giants. They're humongous. We have no chance. And they spread this sentiment amongst the people, and they all grumble against God. So these are the four things, the four categories of sin that the Israelites were guilty of, most of them, that brought about God's displeasure. So here's how we can sum up the first 10 verses in the story that Paul wants us to know. Even though all of them were saved, baptized, and took, partook together in a spiritual meal, most of them were guilty of idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling against God. This is the story that Paul says is the example for us. And you'll notice that each of these sins carries a very, very, very stark judgment. So, if we are to learn from this, if this was recorded for us to learn, what is the, what is the lesson? What should we do based on this knowledge? Paul tells us in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. These two little words that Paul uses here is the command, take heed. In other words, be careful. Be careful. Just because you've experienced God save you out of the land of Egypt and bring you through the sea and provide you with water out of a rock and bread from heaven means, does not mean that you are immune from temptation. Be careful. This is what Paul wants us to learn from the Israelites. And he says, lest you fall. Now, I don't know about you, that's, that's too generic for me. Um, I need specifics when I, when I am threatened like this. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, very often I was told, I need to take heed of my actions or else. Anybody, ever, anybody in here get that or else? And I would always ask when somebody would say that to me, well, what's the or else just in case what I'm doing is actually worth what the consequences are? <laughs> And it turns out that asking that question alone brought down the fire of heaven on me, but that's another story. Uh, so what specifically, what specifically will we fall into? What is this third danger that if we don't take heed, if we're not careful, we could fall into? Well, Paul tells us as we move on in our passage, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with, temp- but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from, and here's our word, idolatry. Free, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is the, is the danger. Idolatry is the thing we may fall into if we do not take heed. Now, verse 13 is a verse that we love to just rip right out of context and put in, like, encouraging cards, right? Like, you can do it. In fact, our, our, our cultural narrative out there will, will co-opt texts like these to say, you have the strength inside you to overcome. 
You just got to look, you know, deep, deep down and find that strength and you can overcome. But what Paul is saying here is precisely the opposite of that. But for us to understand, we need to have the rest of the passage in mind. So we're going to read on and we'll come back to verse 13 at the end. So verse 15, I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, look, think critically about this. Weigh the evidence. Don't just be spoon-fed by myself or anyone else, but weigh what you know. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the, author, in the altar? Notice the repetition in language here. Several times here, Paul has used this word participant. You see, everything we do, every thought we have, every word we say is a participant in something. That is what worship is. When we think godly thoughts, when we say godly things, when we live into the design God has given for us, we are worshiping him and we are participating in the good work he is doing in this world. Do you remember um, earlier when we said that there's uh, an odd connection between sexual immorality and idolatry? Well, it's because the same type of intimacy and level of intimacy we have when we engage in sex is the same type and level of intimacy we have with our object of worship when we worship it. Put another way, to worship idols is to tether our hearts to them in the same way that to worship God is to intimately tether our hearts to him. Now, Paul anticipates what the Corinthians are going to say back to this. Because they have the advantage of having this whole thing read at once. Maybe that's a disadvantage, just kind of long. But they have had this whole thing read at once. And so they'll remember that just two chapters ago, Paul was very adamant to say an idol is nothing. So what's the problem? If we're tethering ourselves to nothing, right? It's no big deal. We can eat the food for that same reason. And Paul anticipates that, and he responds in verse 19. So what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be, and here's our word again, participants in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see, what makes idolatry so dangerous is not because of the idol. It's not because of the object of worship. It is nothing. What makes idolatry so dangerous and so terrible for the Christian is that worshiping an idol is intimately tethering your heart to the worship of God's enemies. It is intimately tethering your heart to those who would do anything to stop what God is doing in this world. It's a scary place to be, right? Paul agrees when he finishes with verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The language he uses here expects the answer that we all know to be true. No, we're not stronger than he is. We're not even as strong as we think we are. 
And so here is the third danger that we see. This third great danger is that if we're not careful, if we do not take heed with the freedoms, the legitimate freedoms God has given us, we can fall into idolatry and thus tether our hearts to the work of God's enemies. And the worst thing about it is we are not strong enough to resist that. Despite what the world may say, we do not have the strength in us to overcome the lure of temptation in our lives. So what is the better way that Paul offers? What is the better way that God offers us? Let's jump back to 13, verse 13, and read that one more time. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, even though we do not have in in and of ourselves the ability to overcome this temptation, when we tether ourselves to God alone in the worship of him, we find a strength that is far more powerful than we could ever hope for or even imagine. It is in the worship of God alone with every part of our life that we find the strength in him to overcome temptation. It is only then that we can live a life that is about building up our brother or sister in Christ as opposed to tearing them down. It is only then that we can live a life that is about proclaiming the gospel and pushing forward the kingdom instead of being a hindrance to them. And it is only then, it is only then that we can be a part of God's good work in this world and not the evil work of his enemies. This is what Paul would have us learn from the Israelites today. So um, let's get real practical about this for a couple minutes and then we'll come to the table together. I want to offer us a question, a question that's meant to be diagnostic. And um, when we answer this question thoughtfully and um, with some good reflection, I think it's going to bring us really close to the idols that are vying for our attention and for our hearts. Okay, if you're in a community group, you're going to be discussing this, the answer to this question together this week, so I'd encourage you, if you take notes, jot it down, or just be thinking about it at lunch or on the way home. Um, but even if you're not in a community group, this is a really important question to ask ourselves. Okay, here it is. What can't I live without? What can't I live without? What is the one thing in my life that I just cannot imagine not having? Or more to the point, what's the one thing in my life that without it, I can't believe God is good and worthy of my worship? What can't I live without? You see, the really subtle danger of idolatry is that idols are always good things that God created for us to enjoy that become an ultimate thing for us to orient our life towards. You see, this is the scheme. We talk about this demonic activity. When we think about demonic activity, we tend to think of coming face-to-face with some sort of demon and having to like, do battle with it. And that happens, but way more commonly, way more commonly, demonic activity is simply an attempt to distract our eyes from the only thing that can be ultimate for us, which is God. We don't have to worship Satan in order to be a part of what he's doing. We just have to not be focused on God. This is the danger of idolatry. So what can't you live without? And the answer to this question, when you come to it, if it's not God, then heed Paul's advice, or Paul's command, rather, to flee idolatry. 
to flee idolatry. Just run. With all haste, throw off everything that brings you into contact with this idol and run. Get away from it. And I understand the weight of that because for some folks, and a lot of us have been there, to flee idolatry means to make a really vulnerable confession. The likes of, I am out of control in my consumption with this substance. I can't stop it. It may mean coming clean to a community group or a family member, a spouse, a friend, or a neighbor, or a roommate about something that has been eating you alive and pulling you away from God. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what on the other side of that confession is waiting for those who will worship God alone. And it is something that no idol in this world can ever, ever give us. Because in God, we have an object of our worship who was so discontent with our sin that he came down to earth to become a part of his creation. And he lived the perfect life that we were designed to live, that we were commanded to live, but we didn't. So that we could be treated as if we did live it. And then he died the death that we should have died because we lived the life we weren't supposed to live so that we wouldn't have to die that death. And rose again on the third day to new life into which he invites us. Friends, there is nothing in this world that can offer you that. Nothing. Only in the true worship of God alone can we have this assurance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, you have power over life and death. You know even things that are uncertain and obscure, and our very thoughts and feelings are not hidden from you. You know how weak we are, both in soul and in body. Give us strength, O Lord, in our frailty and sustain us in our sufferings. Grant us a prudent judgment and let us always be mindful of your blessings. Let us retain until the end your grace that has protected us until now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.